Well, amen, and thank you, Paul, thank you, choir, Abby, for that great solo. If you are new to North Roanoke Baptist Church, or relatively new, we are walking through, during the summer, the book of Psalms, and there are 150 of them, so we're not going to make it all the way through the Psalms this one summer, but we often take a pause from whatever series we're working through in the summertime because of vacation schedules and the like, and work our way systematically, slowly through the book of the Psalms. And we're in chapter 18 today, chapter 18, verses 1 through 19. And I just want to pray uh, that the Lord would aid us in our hearing of His Word this morning. Would you bow with me? God, we ask in Jesus' name that, Lord, if it's Your will for us to be able to invest in these families and these students, God, that You would just bring an outpouring of volunteers who are ready to, to go the distance this year with them. God, we pray uh, for the deacons who've been nominated uh, to serve our church family this coming year, Lord, that you would bless them uh, with an extra measure of your presence in their lives. God, the fullness of joy that comes from walking with and abiding in Christ. God, we pray that as we encounter Psalm 18, that you would give us uh, ears to hear the, the beautiful things that are in your law. And God, that you would open our eyes to understand what it is you would have us to do in response. We ask it in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. Psalm chapter 18, and we'll cover the first 19 verses. Psalm chapter 18, verses 1 through 19. Hear now the word of God. For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, I love you, Lord. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me, and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and I cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry for help before him came into his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils, and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him passed his thick clouds, hailstones, and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered His voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out arrows and scattered them, and lightning flashes in abundance and routed them. Then the channels of water appeared, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils, He sent from on high he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty 
for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Psalm 18 is an interesting psalm. It's recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 22 as well as here in chapter 18. And the text in chapter 22 of 2 Samuel is nearly identical. There are a few places where it diverges, but essentially it's the, it's the same song of deliverance recorded for us in Psalm 18 and also in, in 2 Samuel chapter 22. And in the prescript, right, in that, I don't know about you in your Bible, but in mine there's, there's like a heading that's been provided by the editor that kind of summarizes what the psalm's about. But in many of the psalms, there's then a a prescript, and the prescript is a part of the inspired text of Scripture. So all of that that I read that says, for the choir director, a psalm of David, a servant of the Lord who spoke, are you with me? All, all of that is a part of the Scripture. And David tells us at the very beginning that it's, it's for the choir director, or perhaps, as, as many Hebrew scholars have interpreted down through the centuries, unto the end. So he's using his life... And the battle and the victory that he's won over Saul and even the Philistines as representative of something that's even greater yet to come. So once more, David's victory and his life is used to point us to a greater king who would be delivered by the Lord from all of his enemies and who would be the source of deliverance for all who would come under his rule. Now some of this has to wait until next week because David being enthroned as the king and being over all the nations comes later in Psalm 18. But the point that we're to, to derive from Psalm 18 is this. Salvation comes through submission to a king. A king who conquers not just human armies, but even death, hell, and the grave. And Psalm 18 will show us those truths as we get there in just a moment. So to have victory, to have a share in the victory of the king who interestingly enough begins as a servant of the Lord, you see in the header. He starts out as a servant of the Lord, and by the end of the psalm, he's the king of the Lord. So to have a share in the victory of this servant who becomes king, we must serve the king who loves and serves the Lord and takes refuge in him. Secondly, we must serve the king who cries out to the Lord for victory over death, ungodliness, and the grave. And finally, we must serve the king who is vindicated and rescued from death by the Lord who delights in him. So first, we must serve the king who loves and serves the Lord and takes refuge in him. This, this king is, spoiler alert, this king is Jesus, right? Jesus is the king who comes in submission to the Father and, and does not consider it robbery that Though he is God, he's the one who leaves heaven and enters into time and space to become not just any man, but a man who would die. Not just a man who would die, but a man who would die on the cross in order to serve the Lord and redeem and rescue a people. The Lord's King is the one who loves the Lord. Do you see that word in verse 1? I love you, O Lord. Do you love the Lord? Do you really love the Lord? I love you. The intensity 
of, of verse 1 is, it's hard to capture. This is, this is not the word agape love. This is not just any old word for love. It is this intense, passionate, it's a love that's even used of romantic, intimate relationships. God, you're, you're my all. I, I want to be totally yours. I love you, Lord. Do you love the Lord? I love you deeply, passionately, longingly. I'm not here this morning just because it's what I wake up on Sunday morning and do. I'm here for you, Lord, because I love you. I didn't just put my offering in the offering plate this morning with the same amount that it always is unthinkingly because I got a percentage that I apply and I just do it out of routine. No, I thought about it. And and as I put it in the plate and the plate passed before me and I thought about all that you've given to me and how I get to respond to you in love, I love you, Lord. Do you love the Lord like that? Amen. Amen. My wife, her name is Stacy. For those of you who are new at North Roanoke, she caught my eye when I was young. I knew I wanted to marry Stacy, and I loved her, and I do love her. But you know what that kind of love does? You say, a lot of people say, Christianity is about, it's about relationship, not religion. But the sort of relationship that I had with Stacy produced a religion with one rule. Whatever she wants. That's, that's what love for the Lord does. Whatever the Lord commands, whatever He expects, whatever He asks, whatever He desires, I love Him. Wherever He asks me to go, I'm going. Whatever He asks me to do, I'm doing it. Whatever He asks me to give, I'm giving it. Whoever He sends me to with the message of the gospel, whenever the phone rings, I am doing it. Not because I have to. Not because it's an onerous obligation on my shoulders and a burden. I love the Lord. In January of 1996, we had a blizzard and I wanted to see Stacy. We weren't yet married. We were dating. There was two feet of snow on the ground. Peter's Creek was, nobody was moving up and down Peter's Creek. And I said to my dad, hey, uh, I'm 18. I'm an adult now. I want to go see Stacy. No, you're not. All right. Next day, I want to go see Stacy. All right, fine. Just, you got to walk home too. So I walked from... Montclair Estates to Starmount and Barrens in the blizzard with the snow blowing. And that evening, as dusk fell, I walked home. And by the time I got to Hardy's down here on Peter Creek Road, there was a big snow mound, and it was just snowing and snowing and snowing. And I was so tired, I couldn't take another step. So I climbed up on the snow mound and took a 30-minute nap before I walked home. And I think back on that now, that was crazy. What in the world? I love Stacy. Do you love the Lord? If, if the cross didn't stop Jesus from loving his Father, neither should the cost of following Jesus stop you from loving him. 
The evidence of the king's love for the Lord is seen in his willingness to trust the Lord in all circumstances. Look at verse 2. David reflects back on all the times that he had to hide in a cave and climb up a rock and he was protected by fortresses. And do you see what he's saying? Look, all the caves and all the rocks and all the fortresses that suddenly were there when I needed them, that's not really what was protecting me. No, the Lord was my strength. The Lord was my cave and my fortress and my rock and my deliverer and my way of escape and my shield of protection and the source of my salvation, my rescue, my stronghold, his elevated place of security. Every time it seemed like he was going to die, he was going to be eliminated, annihilated, defeated, God somehow intervened and it wasn't the rock that was protecting him, it was the Lord who was his rock. Those who belong to the Lord love the Lord, and they also give the Lord credit for their victory. For their talents, for their gifts, for everything. They turn everything back to the Lord. David's victory doesn't come from the rocks and caves, but from the Lord His rock. The king is victorious because he takes refuge, which means to trust, to put all that he has into the Lord's basket. He puts it all on the Lord. You see, when we really understand that all of our victory and salvation and safety and deliverance comes from the Lord, then we refuse to call upon lesser things for help. You see verse 3, he says, I call upon the Lord. In the Hebrew, this is written in a tense that says, I call and will keep on calling. He didn't just place a phone call to the Lord one time. Hey God, could you get me out of this one jam? That's that's how we like to treat the Lord sometimes. I'm going to live my life however I want to live it. And then I'm going to go as far as I can in sin and worldliness and everything else. And then I'm going to get a jam and I'm going to be like, hey, I'm going to call you, Lord. Help me out. Because you know I, I called you a long time ago. I'm going to call you again. That's not what this is saying. I just keep on calling on the Lord. Every time the world gives me another option, well, I'm just going to binge watch Netflix today. I'm going to go on a shopping spree to cure my depression. I'm going to get absorbed in my kids and my grandkids and my family and I'm going to take up a hobby. I'm going to do golf or scrapbooking or pickleball or Facebook. I'm going to, whatever it is, I'm going to ignore the spiritual condition of my life by papering over it with all sorts of other stuff. That's not the answer. The answer is calling upon the Lord. The Lord's not just an option among many. He's the only option. He is and will always be God who is worthy of praise. The only one strong enough to save us, to free us from our enemies. What we see in verses 1 through 3 is a picture of the faithfulness that, the Lord, that, that King Jesus has in the middle of a fierce battle that is motivated by love. You see, later David would get comfortable and fall into sin. But his rise to the throne is a picture of the rise of Jesus, the greater king, his seed that is mentioned in verse 50, who would wage the greatest battle ever waged in human history. This king, the Lord Jesus Christ, would rely upon the Lord for victory because of a deep, eternal, unshakable love. A love that he had even before he ever entered into time and space. A love that forever binds God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. 
the love by which God was raised from the dead and by which we are saved. If we've been saved by that kind of love, then we're going to live it out in the battles that come in our life. So let me ask you once more. Do you love Jesus, the Lord and King? Is He your rock, your refuge, and your redeemer? Secondly, serve the King who cries out to the Lord for victory. Serve the King who cries out to the Lord for victory over death, ungodliness, and the grave. It's interesting that in verses 1 through 3, David mentions the rocks and the caves and all these geographical helps that he had. But in verses 4 through 6, he doesn't talk about Saul. He doesn't talk about the Philistines. He talks about death, ungodliness, or Belial and the grave. Or death, hell, and the grave. David understands that his victory is pointing us forward to this greater king who's going to get a much bigger victory than over the Philistines or over King Saul. There's a king who's coming who's going to defeat death, hell, and the grave. In verses 4 through 6, we begin getting the idea, therefore, that the psalm might just be about more than King David in his battles. And by the way, if we'd been reading along systematically from Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament in, the, in our Hebrew Bibles, we would have already read the book of Jonah. right? Our, 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 the order of our Old Testament is different than what it was at the time that Jesus walked the earth. When Jesus walked the earth, the Old Testament was ordered law, or the book of Moses, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then the prophets, then the writings of which Psalm is included, right? The Psalms are included. So you've already read the prophets by the time you come to the Psalms if you're reading in order. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? So you've already read the book of Jonah. Does anybody remember what happens to Jonah in chapter 2? Remember he's on a boat, right? Because he's trying to run away from the presence of God. Probably not a good idea if you're a prophet of God. And there's pagan sailors on this boat and they throw him overboard because the storm has come because of Jonah's disobedience. And he's like, well, throw me overboard. It's my fault. And they're like, well, we don't want to be held guilty of your blood. Sounds a lot like Pilate throwing Jesus to certain death, not wanting to be held guilty of Jesus' blood. But he's thrown overboard to certain death by pagans who want to be held innocent of his blood. And then in verse 2, excuse me, in chapter 2, we get a quotation of his prayer. I went down into the mire and the cords of death held me. And you know that he's in the bottom of the sea begging for his life and he's rescued by a giant fish who spits him out on dry land three days later. Guess what? Exact same language in Jonah 2 that we find in verses 4 through 6 here in Psalm 18. This is important because David is using language that's applied to his battle in a way that tells us that he knows his battle is bigger than just beating Saul. His enemies aren't Saul, but death and ungodliness or worthlessness or destruction. The word is Belial and Sheol, the netherworld, the abode of the dead. In 2 Corinthians 6.15, Paul says that Satan's name is Belial. He tells us this when he says, What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? 
In Deuteronomy, the word Belial is associated with the worthlessness or the ungodliness of idolatry and rebellion. So David is telling us that his victory over Saul is about more than him being king. It's also about a king yet to come. Back in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord says to David, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David already knows he's going to die. God's told him in 2 Samuel 7, he's going to lie down with his fathers. And yet, he also says that his victory over Saul is a victory over death, wickedness, and the grave. How can it be? Other than that, he knows a son is yet to come through whom that victory will be had. David knows that his battle is a preview of coming attractions. His battle is indicative of the battle yet to come in Christ. Which means, by the way, dear Christian, if David's battle is a preview of the battle that Christ would rage, now that Christ has come and defeated death, hell, and the grave, your life and your battle is a reflection of the victory that's already been given in Christ. You can wage that war with confidence because Christ has already conquered the grave. David knew that one day Christ was coming. He knew that his son would destroy our true enemies forever. The battle that David waged had been won by relying on the Lord for strength, even in the face of death. David's life and victory foreshadow the ultimate life and battle and victory yet to come. And what a battle he has won, church. In verses 4 and 5, it seems that death, the forces of darkness, and the grave are going to be victorious. Do you see that in verse 4? He's bound in the cords of death. He's overwhelmed by a torrent or a flood of ungodliness that terrifies him or startles him or assails him. And he is surrounded by the cords of Sheol, seemingly held in the abode of the dead. But look at verse 6. The cry for the deliverance that is made that comes from this servant and king gains a hearing In God's temple or in his house. Aren't you glad to know that you can call upon the Lord and he will hear you? That that the cry or the plea of the one who does not want to face death in their own sin. But wants to plea to the Lord for his mercy and grace. Gains a hearing in the throne room of God. You say, well it says temple. It does. But remember the temple isn't constructed until the time of Solomon. So why does it say temple? The word is, is here is house or the place of God. What David is saying to us is that he got a hearing not just in the earthly temple, which isn't even constructed yet, and not even in the tabernacle. He's saying God heard me in the heavenly throne room when I cried out to him. You can get a hearing in the very presence of God. David did not have to go to the tabernacle to get a hearing. He didn't have to go to a temple that wasn't yet constructed to get a hearing. He just cries out to God in the distress of death and apparent defeat. And God hears him. And when Jesus, who is God in the flesh, comes to literally walk through death and cancel its enslaving power over our lives, the Lord hears him as well. And the Lord vindicates him. And all who take refuge in this Son 
have a share in his victory. You say, well, that's a lot to say, that, that God vindicates Jesus. How do you know? Like, it's important that we know that Jesus' death counts, right, for us. It's important for us to know that when Jesus comes and marches through death by going to the cross and into the grave by going to the tomb and defeats it by being raised on the third day, how do we know that, that God hears and sees that? Well, look at the language we get in verses 7 through 19. It's the language of vindication. It's the language that tells us that God knows full well what His King is doing. We know the Lord hears the cry of His servant King, not just because verse 6 tells us that He does, which is a good start, but also because of this dramatic response on the part of the Lord in verses 7 through 19. Kyle and Delich say it this way, The Lord's intervention on behalf of the king is accompanied by terrible manifestations in nature. The earth is shaken because the Lord acts in righteous anger to deliver his king. In the Hebrew language, the, the word nostrils are the organ of anger in the Hebrew language. You ever, you ever been so mad your nostrils just flare? This is the, this is the picture of, of a God who is angry that his son, his servant, the one who's followed him faithfully, has been destroyed by his enemies. Nostrils are mentioned in verse 8 and in verse 15. Smoke, verse 8. Fire, verse 8. Coals, verse 8. Are a way of portraying God's holy response to sin. In Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 2. Coals rain down from God's chariot throne Onto the doomed city. Moses says in Deuteronomy 4.24. The Lord your God is a consuming fire. A jealous God. Church, God stands against whatever comes against his servant and his king. God stands against our sin. He stands against everything we would say, do, or think that would undermine Christ, his king. You say, well this seems pretty extreme. Such is the love of the father for the son. Kiss the Son, lest you stumble in the way, Psalm 2.12. We've seen similar manifestations of the holiness of God before, have we not? At the Red Sea, God appears by cloud and by fire. At Sinai, the mountain quakes and is wrapped in smoke, and God descends on it in a fire. What God does on behalf of David, therefore, using similar language, shows us that it has eternal significance and consequence because God's not going to let his covenant fail. He made a promise to David that there's coming a son out of your line who's going to destroy Satan, the grave, and everything else that stands against my people, and I'm not going to let Saul win. I'm not going to let the Philistines win. Not because you're great, David, but because I'm great and I keep my promise. And I'll move heaven and earth to come against those who come against David. And how much more will God move heaven and earth to come against that which comes against His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Can we read these verses and not think of Calvary? Can we forget that it was in the hour of Christ's deepest calamity, His distress, when Judas betrayed and his friends forsook, when the multitude derided Him and the smiles of His Father's love were withheld? The sorrows of death surrounded him. In his distress, he prayed. God made the earth to shake and to tremble and the rocks to cleave. And he brought him out in his resurrection because he delighted in him 
and in Christ's undertaking, so says Matthew Henry. No one other than Jesus, church, deserves the Lord to move in righteous anger against the forces of death, hell, and the grave. Fallen sinners deserve these things. But Jesus does not deserve these things. And because He did not deserve them, Jesus is able to destroy them. Death could have held us. The grave could have held us. But it could not hold Christ. And if we stop trying to wage war against Jesus and instead receive Jesus as our Lord and our King and truly can say, I love you, Lord. You're my rock. You're my deliverer. Then the victory that He has is the victory that we can have as well. It's no accident, church, that the world went dark and that the earth quaked when Jesus died. The picture in verses 9 through 15 is like that of a coming storm. It's darkness, it's water, it's heaviness. In verse 9, God bows the heavens low and He comes down in His heavenly chariot for the purpose of judgment. See Ezekiel chapter 1, very similar language. And He comes down to vindicate His King with hailstones, coals of fire, lightning flashes, and a thundering voice. Church, the resurrection says that death, hell, and the grave are defeated in Christ the King. The darkening of the world and the earthquake that came at the time of the crucifixion declares to us that there's an open invitation between now and when the fires of God's wrath finally fall on His world. Do you see that? The world goes dark. He comes low in a storm. Do you remember what happened at the crucifixion of Christ? Did not the world go dark? Was there not an earthquake? Do you remember? I know it's not Easter, but it, every, day, every Sunday is Easter, right? Are you all tracking with me? So, so this prophecy of what's going to happen when Christ comes is already unraveling. It's already begun. Christ has already come down in, in darkness to say, I recognize that my son went to the cross for me. I recognize that he did this as a sacrifice of love. I recognize that he's the son who came to destroy death, hell, and the grave. And the fire hasn't fallen yet on the world. It's, it's a to-be-continued with a big open invitation to anyone who stands here this morning and hears the gospel. God has declared, He's come down in darkness to say, My Son has come to destroy death, hell, and the grave. What are you going to do with Him? Will you receive Him before it's too late? Or will you be one of those on whom the fire must fall? Because you have opposed the Lord and His King. When God comes to vindicate His servant king, you want to be on the right side of that equation. Kyle and Delish say it this way, what we see described in these verses is what happens when God turns the fiery side of His glory toward the world. The heavens come down in defense of Jesus, God's King and His Son and His servant. When Jesus was overwhelmed, look at what God does. In verse 4 and then in verse 16. Jesus comes down to be overwhelmed by the floods of ungodliness in our behalf. The torrents of ungodliness. And in verse 16, it tells us that the Lord drew him out of the many waters. Although the enemy seemed to have greater resources, they were no match for the Lord of life. Verse 17, although they tried to take advantage of Jesus in his most vulnerable state, the Lord was his stay, his protector, his sustenance through adversity, verse 18. And although Jesus 
called out in distress in a tight or narrow space, verse 6, the Lord brought him to an open or a broad place, verse 19, and rescued him. And why did he do that? Do you see it in verse 19? Because he delighted in him. The word there is written in this way, he had delighted in him. In other words, he delighted in Jesus from the beginning of time. From time evermore, Jesus was the delight of the Father. God the Son was the delight of God the Father. There was no time that the Father did not delight in the Son. And because He delighted in the Son, He was pleased with His offering. He was pleased with His sacrifice. The reason that we can have hope this morning is not because we did something special to please God. It's not because we did a million good deeds. The reason that we have hope this morning is because the Father delighted in His Son and the offering of His life was a sweet aroma in His nostrils and He comes to vindicate His Son and all those who will attach their life to His. It's no accident that the Father said of the Son at His baptism, do you remember it? This is my beloved Son in whom... I'm well pleased. Jesus is baptized to fulfill all righteousness. It was a symbol of His coming death and resurrection. The way in which He would rid the world of the forces of darkness and of the defeat and the fear of death. He would go down into death and be raised in victory. And the promise of the gospel is this. If you will give your life to Jesus, if you will love Him as the Lord of your life, the victory that Jesus already has over death, hell, and the grave can be your victory as well. So this morning, will you let the victory of Christ be your victory? Will you let His death be your death? Will you let His resurrection be your life? Will you serve this King in whom the Lord delights? Today is the day of salvation for all who will love and serve this King. Do you love Him? I love you, O Lord. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, we ask, during our time of response this morning, that you would move in hearts. God, that you would convict us where our deeds and our actions, our thoughts, our words have fallen short of love for you. God, we thank you that you delighted in the Son. We thank you that you have come in vindication of his death, proving, God, that it, that it counts and it can count in our place. And God, I ask in Jesus' name that as we stand and sing in just a moment, Lord, that if you're moving and stirring in hearts, that you would grant the liberty for those who need to respond to you to respond. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.